Okay, let's let's continue on. We're looking at the question of evolution. Lisa and Daniel told me they couldn't be here, so um, they're kind of helping me with this. They're both scientists. This is kind of an interest of theirs, and and they uh, gave me these books to read through. And so uh, one of them I do not have. I think Amanda was cleaning up my house and putting my book somewhere, so I don't know where it is. So I'm not going to talk about the other book. Yes, that one. What did I say? Yeah. I have I have a book. I have a book next to a chair, and I always know that it's there. And it wasn't there this morning, and I didn't have time to. So I have a table next to a chair that always has books and papers on it. <laughs> but what we're looking at, and and obviously there's probably another five million books on this topic. We're looking at two books. One is a, a kind of standard defense of, of, uh, of wow, what's the word? Uh, designed evolution or guided evolution. Teleological, well, yes, intelligent design, but even more than that because um, intelligent design can, uh, is, is often found within the, the frame of old earth creationism. I think that's safe to say. So remember, we talked about sort of five ways of understanding creation. There's young earth creationism, which would hold that the earth and the universe are only a few thousand years old, okay? That is six literal days of creation in Genesis, et cetera. There's old earth creation, which says that the universe is billions of years old, um, but God sort of specifically intervened at points in time to, uh, to, to bring about sort of changes in creation. So the six days represent sort of six periods of of, of creation specifically of God, but the universe is still old. And then there's sort of guided evolution. You know what? I have the chart right here. Evolutionary creation, which would say, uh, of course, also the universe is old, but there is both macro and micro evolution, uh, and it is ordained and sustained. So God is personal, and he, but he does interact with, uh, but he does interact with the creation. Then there's deistic evolution, which actually very few people hold to, uh, which is that God sort of set things up and then just sort of let them go, but there is no sort of personal intervention or interaction in any way. And then there's disteleological evolution, which argues that um, there's really no there's no God, there's no accounting for uh, anything. That, you know, we do have the diversity in biology because of evolution, but it's basically all blind chance. It's not guided. There is no personal God, etc. So he's arguing for evolutionary creation, and uh, of which intelligent design would be a portion, but uh, intelligent. But he he ultimately rejects uh, old old Earth creationism or the idea that the universe is old, but that God intervened. So, for example, he rejects the idea that God intervened six thousand years ago to create Adam and Eve. So that could be a feature, though, of old Earth creationism, where you have an old Earth, but God is still intervening at moments to um to create okay so there could be a, a historical adam and eve that god created ex nihilo apart from the evolutionary trap not according to him according to yeah so there at least that, that's an option that's so that's the second book's main theory okay. um which looks at genealogical adam and eve and that puts forth really a thought experiment uh that suggests that um you could have a historic Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden who are created by God, just as Genesis 2 suggests. His argument is that Genesis 2 is about the creation of Adam and Eve, 
Genesis 1 is about the creation of mankind. And, and there were people then outside of the Garden of Eden, okay, long by evolutionary processes, long before Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, their children, eventually interbred with those outside of the Garden. And the consequences of the fall uh, and the genealogy, both, which are really connected in Christian theology, both carried on in, you know, among all people at that point. So that is how you have a federal headship of Adam, a universal fall into sin, and, and all of that. Does that make sense? So that's that book. But this author argues against uh, Adam and Eve being historical persons in any way. So there, there are also, you know, there are also these ideas like, uh, you know, where you've got, you know, Adam and Eve represent certain sort of groups of people at, at certain times, you know, so, uh, but not two, two persons and only two persons. So one of the main sort of theses of this author, Dennis Lamoro, uh, his book, by the way, is called I Love Jesus and I Accept Evolution. And he talks about how he did go through a young earth creation, an old earth creation phase before arriving at his present phase. And he does have degrees in dentistry, theology, and biology. Uh, so he's a, yeah, a good mixture. And actually he uses dentistry fossils of teeth basically to, to prove, to argue for his point. So maybe that dentistry thing did come in common. It might've also paid for his way to go to theology school for all I know. Okay. Um, but let me just read some of what he says. At the very end of last week, we started to talk about scientific concordism and theological concordism. And concord is a, a word meaning agreement. And so scientific concordism is the argument that, say, young earth creationists in particular will put forward, which says that, that in the Bible, when it describes science, it is describing it accurately. So what the Bible describes scientifically is in accordance with what really is. So again, six 24-hour days, that is, that is, those things agree. The Bible says 24-hour days, the, uh, and, and, and science then matches that. That's called scientific concordism. So the earth is 6,000 years old. Okay, that's, he completely disagrees with the theory of scientific concordism. He says there is no scientific concordism. It doesn't exist. Because if you can scientifically prove that the universe is such and such old, then it's impossible. Or if you can scientifically prove that evolution is a reality, then scientific concordism is an impossibility. So what do you do then with the, uh, with the science of the Bible? And his answer is that, let me read it. Uh, well, his, let me say, his answer is that God is, in the scriptures, God is speaking to human beings with the understanding of science that they have at that time. And he is using that understanding of science at that time to make infallible theological points. One of the things that he does as an evangelical believer is defend biblical scriptural infallibility. So how does he do that and affirm evolution? This is how he does it. He's arguing that Scientific concordism is not real, but theological concordism is. That what the Bible says about God theologically is accurate, even if it's wrong scientifically. And he's using people's understanding of science in that day to say a true statement theologically. Okay? Now, what the, what's so nice about the second book is that he holds, he puts forth an idea that both things can be true. 
that the Bible, um, I mean, he doesn't look at some of these same questions, but on the question of humanity and those sorts of things, both of those things can be true, that Adam and Eve can be historical persons and people can have evolved and it solves all those problems. If, if both of those things are possible and it solves all those problems very neatly. So let me just read a little bit from this book. He says, the belief that there is an accord or correspondence between the Bible and science is a very reasonable expectation since God is both the author of his words and the creator of his works, that is, Bible and creation. But the question must be asked, is scientific concordism true? Does the science and scripture actually align with modern scientific evidence? And if scientific concordism is false, does this undermine the Christian faith? And so ultimately his answer to that is going to be, no, it doesn't undermine the Christian faith. He gives an example of when Jesus talks about the mustard seed, right? You know, the parable of the mustard seed, smallest seed on earth makes a large bush and birds can put their nests in it, okay? <coughs> well, as we get, talked about last week, the mustard seed is not the smallest seed on earth, but it was probably the smallest seed that Jesus' audience would have known about. So it would have been kind of silly for Jesus to be like, well, you know, the mustard seed's really small, but actually there's a smaller seed over in like North America somewhere that we actually, we don't call it North America yet. Anyway, that continent you've never heard about over there. Uh, and well, that's not very good storytelling. So Jesus uses the science that they know to prove a theological point. And so this author calls that the message incident principle, the message incident principle. So there's a divorce between the message that is to be conveyed and the incident that is related to that message. So the message is divine theology, inerrant spiritual truth. The incident is ancient science or phenomenological perspective. What does that mean? Let me read. This approach contends that in order to reveal spiritual truths as effectively as possible to ancient people, the Holy Spirit employed their understanding of nature, which was based on an ancient phenomenological perspective. Instead of confusing or distracting the biblical writers and their readers with modern scientific concepts, God came down to their level and used the science of their day. Okay, so for example, the biggest example of this is going to be what did people think about the earth? Well, I want to see if I can share an image. It would make this a picture is worth a thousand words. I sent it to myself. There it is. It's from the book that is in my hand. And let's see. I'm going to share screen. So Carol and... Oh, I think I can do this. Okay, I think Carol and Charles, uh, y'all should be able to see that picture. And then everyone in here should be able to see that picture as well. So this is an image of... Yeah, that's as good as I can do it. Um, it is a little bit like the Astrodome, isn't it? Okay, so the, the roof of the Astrodome is the firmament. Yeah. <coughs> so this is an ancient understanding of the universe. All right. Actually, I saw just this week a debate on whether people in the Bible thought the earth was flat, and people went back and forth on that. And some said, no, they knew that it was not flat, but some people say it definitely, they definitely thought it was flat. So I don't know. His argument, this author's argument, is that they believe the earth was flat. It was surrounded by water. 
Uh, it was on foundations, foundations of the earth. And see, the problem is that when I took this picture, my shadow is in the picture. So, yeah. You've got foundations here of the heavens. Here's the firmament. The sun, moon, and stars move around in the firmament. Yeah, heaven above it all. That's where God hangs out. That is God's dwelling there. And then there are waters above the firmament. Of course, this should be language familiar to you if you've ever read Genesis. It'll talk about firmaments and waters above the firmaments and things of that nature. And it and so if you if you walk around, you know, long enough, you know, you get to the you get to you get to water eventually, right? So it's pretty logical that people thought, oh, I'm, I must be surrounded by water. And so um so this is a three-tiered universe. And the argument is that this wasn't the time for God to be like, all right, so let me tell y'all, let me let y'all in on something. I know it looks like the earth is still, but actually the earth is spinning at 45,000 miles per hour around this or whatever it is around the sun. It rotates every 24 hours and you're part of a solar system. And, oh, there are trillions of other galaxies and they all have trillions of stars that, that, you know, I'm not sure how effective that would have been. Um, so, Instead, the Bible talks about the sun setting, the sun rising. Actually, you talk about it that way too, even though you know it's not the case, right? Okay. The sun is actually not moving at all. We're moving. So the sun doesn't set. We're revolving. We're rotating. So uh, he says, ancient peoples understood the universe to be made up of three actual and physical levels, the heavenly realm, the earthly world, and the underworld. Uh, and this figure presents this conceptualization of the scripture of the cosmos, and it will be explained in detail in the next section of this chapter. Today, Christians rarely recognize the incidental ancient science, but they correctly focus on the central messages of faith. He's talking about their Philippians uh, 2, where Philippians 2, it says this, Therefore God exalted Jesus to, be highest to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that is that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So he's saying in Philippians, you have evidence of this three-tiered, you know, uh, above the earth. What does it say? In heaven, on earth, under the earth. And so this is that three-tiered uh, three heaven. And uh, the point is that we read that now and we go, oh, well, that's true. The theology of that is true. Everyone is going to bow the knee to Christ when Christ comes again. But we don't have a three-tiered universe. So we've accepted the message without the incident, right? We've accepted the message without the science. So his argument is that the, there's, a, there's a distinction between... The, so scientific concordism would say that the message and the incident are the same. The message and the incident are the same. The event and the message it talks about are one and the same. The the uh, okay. Another example would be Noah's flood. Okay. People would say, for example, that the message of the flood is that God punishes wicked. You know, the, the, that God punishes the wicked, and that by the way, He'll never flood the earth again, and that He saves people through water. You know, Peter, First Peter three, things like that. So there are messages of the flood. But that doesn't mean there's necessarily or there necessarily had to be a global worldwide flood. So now you get into arguments about whether the flood was local or global. That's one of the main arguments among young earthers and others as well. Um, but that would be another example of a message in an incident. 
So young earthers would most definitely connect the message and the incident. Those two things are cannot be broken apart. But others, he would be one, would look at those and say, well, the incident may or not, may or not be true historically, but the message is true. Now, I happen to think there is a problem with that to a degree. I mean, that is kind of the beginning of like theological liberalism, where you sort of start to decide which incidents. I mean, you, if you, what about the resurrection then? Let's just, let's just jump to the most important thing. What about the resurrection? Does the resurrection teach that, um, that well, you know, uh, one day God is going to make a really nice, uh, I can't even, I, I don't even know how to talk like a liberal, okay? It's, sorry, it's a deficiency I have. But basically they'd say, well, Jesus didn't bodily res raise from the dead, but he is, he is calling us to higher living or something like that. So the incident of, of life-conquering death, uh, the message of life-conquering death trumps the incident of Jesus' resurrection. Like the, the re It's not that the resurrection happened, but that Christians have hope. Maybe, and I don't know in what, a spiritual resurrection or something to that, to that effect. Like I said, I don't speak liberal, so it's, it's hard for me to revoice what they say. <laughs> What's that? I, for, for what? Oh, 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 yeah. Um, so let me, let me get out of this. Let's see. Um, so anyway, so those would be examples. But, but of course, in, this, in that case, this author, of course, affirms the bodily resurrection of Jesus. He's a conservative evangelical and all those sorts of things. The problem with the, if you're going to talk about something like a message incident principle where you can separate the message and the incident, this is the problem you're going to get into, though where it's like, well, what about this incident? What about this incident? What about this incident? Um, what about Lazarus? What about Jonah? What about healing of lepers? What about the, the healing of Naaman? Was that the king's name who had leprosy? I never remember that. Anyway, didn't Elijah heal a leper? With... Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, you know, what about all these incidents? Are, do, do, are, are they all just messages? You know, and then what's the message? If you disconnect the message from the incident... Well, now the message becomes a lot more oblique. Well, I think the message is this. Well, I think the message is that. Well, how do you know if it's not rooted in things? So this is one of the problems ultimately, I think, with this approach is that, you know, you, you're now into a kind of a war of discernment of how to, how to discern messages. <laughs> that said, I do agree with him in that, um, that the Bible does... Uh, come down to, to the scientific level that people were at. It doesn't, it doesn't introduce revolutionary scientific ideas to the people at the time, and there is a basic message to be conveyed. So, you know, I'm not trying to split the baby, but I, I understand both points of view. Um, I just think, I, I don't know what the hermeneutical, hermeneutical principle, that's the interpretive principle is, that allows you to have some liberality with, ignoring incidents as being happening in the Bible, uh, but, but declaring other incidents? Do you say, well, this one is historically verifiable? Well, by what standard? The, message, the resurrection is not historically verifiable to, to a lot of people. <laughs> you know, so, um, and, if you, and if you defend the possibility of miracles, then that does, <laughs> that does mean that there are possibilities of some of these stories really having taken place, just as I said, like a global flood. A global flood 
is not a problem for people who live in believe in resurrection. If you, can, if you can have a resurrection from the dead, you can have a global flood. But the flood also could have been local. <laughs> you know, it doesn't necessitate a global flood either. So how do you determine these sorts of things? And I think that you would have to look at, um, you know, this is a kind of a matter of biblical interpretation and hermeneutics. Um, you know, I think, for example, it's very hard to get away from Abraham in any way, but there are people who do. I don't know how you get away from Abraham because of the lineage, the lineage of the story of Egypt, the Exodus. I mean, that's all relatively recent history, right? Okay. Um, so he gives some examples of the way, for example, the Bible will talk about how the earth is immovable. All right. Well, I guess kind of it is immovable in a certain manner of speaking. I mean, I can't move it. Can you move it? What if we all ran in the opposite direction of the rotation? Would that make a difference? Okay, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Um, but are there any questions about any of that? He goes on to talk about the daily movement of the sun across the sky, the firmament, the waters above the heavens. Um, and we, we really that picture kind of describes it all. That was how they saw the world, and the Bible speaks about that world like that, even though we know that's not the case. And that would certainly be, and that would certainly be his point that God used evolution, and that there's a purpose for it. In, you know, and that it's guided. It's not so that that becomes the debate then between people who affirm evolution, who are believers and unbelievers. Is that you know, believer you know defends sort of guided evolution, if you will, the divinely guided evolution. And and when you do get into things like um, like intelligent design, you know, one of the things they'll look at is is I mean, it's way beyond my understanding, but really they'll start talking about how information is passed on, um, you know, at the cellular level. And they'll talk about, for example, how, um, you know, generally speaking, information dissolves or devolves, I guess, over time, sort of left to its own devices. Uh, if, if not for intelligent guidance, that things would actually not be getting better. Anyway, I, I, I'm kind of out of my league now, but. Yeah, yeah. And that information doesn't increase over time. Things don't get more complex over time, they get less complex. That's the argument of intelligent design is that actually without an intelligent designer, you know, if, if it were just blind chance, we, we shouldn't think that things would always be getting evolving to a better place, more survivability or whatever, the case, more adaptivity, but it actually would devolve. But Chris, did you have a question? But I think what, what, what Chris is saying is that, but, but so, many scientists don't have that humility of, oh, yeah. uh, you know, perspective, that's the, that's the you know, that yeah. So science, yeah. So scientism is the, is the idea that, uh, yeah, I wouldn't know how to explain it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Or that if you're a scientist, you're, you must be right you know, because you have science on your side. But in fact, many scientists disagree about, you know, many things, you know, certain data points and, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah. Well, let me, let me kind of iterate again what the main issue at hand on this topic is. It's the, it's, it's what we really do with Adam and Eve. I mean, that really, I, th I think at the end of the day, that's the, the main issue. If Adam and Eve were not two historical persons, then what do we do with the text that reference them as two historical persons in the New Testament? 
by Jesus himself, by Paul. What do we do with that? Um, what, what do we do with the doctrine of the fall and the way that the fall affected all men if Adam and Eve are not historical persons? Um, it gets pretty hard to reconcile that. And I, he tries later in the book to do it, but I think he does a poor job. I mean, there really isn't a reconciliation of, of that um, on, on his view of, of evolution. So, again, what's interesting about the second book, again, is that it affirms everything we just said in terms of evolution. He assumes people evolved. He assumes that the science is clear in that direction. He also assumes that Genesis 2 references the creation of Adam and Eve. And what he, what he looks for, then, is signs that would disprove that theory, and there is none. So it's a theory that cannot be unproven. Um, and it has biblical witness. So then you ask, then you have to ask other questions like, what is it, what, then what does that say about the people of, outside of the garden? What does the Bible say about people outside of the garden? What kind of people were they? Were they human beings? Were they made in the image of God? Did they fall into sin? What does history tell us about those people? What does archaeology going back before 6,000 years say about those people? Could be 10,000 years because the genealogies may not be complete, but you know, so what? So he looks at all those sorts of questions, and uh, which I think are, are, are very interesting. But one of the things he'll say, too, is that if it is the case that the universe is old and that there is cosmological evolution, he argues that it's, I won't say hypocritical, but it's inconsistent that there would be, that there would not be biological evolution. So that's another point that he would make, that the universe is billions of years old, but then all of a sudden people do this. Again, the second book, though, it has no conflict with that. So because it says, um, again, that you can have both, that God could have reasons for creating Adam and Eve at the time that he did. And it can't be unproven. Um, we just have a few minutes. So let me see. Yeah. Yeah. The, he doesn't. The other author does. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Let me restate the problem. One of the reasons that people argue for young earth creationism, six-day creation, six 24-hour literal days, etc., is that Adam and Eve, when they fell into sin, <clears throat> brought death into the world. They argue that before that, there was no death in the world, no predation prey, no leaves turning brown, etc. There was no death in the world, no death at all. Others argue that the death that they brought into the world was spiritual death. Okay, so there, there are different, I mean, and these things I think can be argued different ways. Um, the second book argues, argues against the need for Adam and Eve to have cosmically brought death into the world. Um, he argues that's something that's read into the text, that it's not in inherent or native to the text, that there could have been death in some form or fashion before Adam and Eve, but that death is qualitatively different after the fall into sin. That is his argument. I don't think he talks about this at all, but that is one of the arguments, one of the reasons I think that young earth creationism is often defended in the way that it is, because what do you do with, you can't have death before the fall. You can't have it. That, that's what they would say. You can't have death before the fall and so you can't have billions of years without death. Even they would acknowledge that. Planets die. Stars die. Right? So, yeah.
Yeah. So, so actually, in the second book, he makes an he makes an historical and archaeological argument that he can sort of point to where the sin took place in human history, because uh, you see warfare increase and and things of that nature. It's it's kind of an interesting argument that actually humanity was more peaceful before about ten thousand years ago. So, but let me what he says. <laughs> He doesn't say much. He doesn't say much about it, but this is what he does say. It was it was the page I was on, so it's a good question. He says Genesis three is built on the notion embraced by many ancient peoples that the world was originally harmonious, but this idyllic age was lost. Belief in an original paradise is clearly seen in in both the first and second biblical creation accounts. Genesis one and two are thought to be different creation accounts. People debate about that too, but. He says, belief in a lost idyllic age is perfectly logical from an ancient phenomenological perspective. So, in other words, he's arguing that others, every civilization has this, this idea of a golden age, of an idyllic period, and then things went to crap, you know? I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what Atlantis is. I mean, I've heard of the word, but... Yeah. I don't read my mythology, I guess, but um, he says in a similar way, Genesis three uses the ancient notion of a lost idyllic age to reveal the same critical message of faith. God judges humans for their sins. Stated more precisely, the Lord's judgmental action in the Garden of Eden account is accommodated through the ancient notion that an idyllic age was lost. So what am I saying now? He asks. That's right. The events in Genesis three did not happen as stated. There never was a cosmic fall. This biblical chapter is something went wrong in the is a something went wrong in the world account. It is etiological and answers the question where did death, suffering, and other terrible things come from? So he divorces completely the idea of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as a historical event. And he basically says, somewhere along the way, people evolved and they realized that they were bad people. And the idyllic age was lost. We don't know when, we don't know how. It just some self-awareness became prevalent enough in primates like us that that is the beginning of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, I don't know if that answers the question because he doesn't really talk necessarily about like the tree to a degree. Well, that's the argument. So that a young earth creationist, again, would not divorce real death from excuse me, a spiritual consequence. Um, so that's that message incident principle once again. Um, so people will say, no, no, no. When the Bible says the fall into sin brought about death, it really brought about physical death and it was cosmic in nature. It brought about physical death in all of the creation. So caterpillars started to die, leaves started to turn brown, etc. cetera. Um, but other people will say, well, no, 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 no. The universe is old. There had to be death before that. Therefore, the death that's talked about in Adam and Eve must be spiritual death or isolation from God. And that's what hell is. It's isolation from God. It's not, you know, then you have whole debates about whether if you're wicked and you die, do you go to hell for to be eternally consciously tormented, not tortured, tormented, or are you annihilated? Do you, do you cease to exist? Is your punishment annihilation? And there are Christians who argue that I do not, or, or do you, do you live for all of eternity? And I would argue that you live for all, that once you're created, you are an eternal being, that all people will live eternally. It's only a question of where, but we're late. So I must pray and then we must go.